Hi everyone, I'm Father Grady. In this episode, we're going to look at Saint-Chapelle in Paris and why we have beautiful churches. If you walk across the square from Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, you'll come to what used to be the royal palace of the kings of France. The centerpiece is Saint-Chapelle, or the Holy Chapel. It was built by the king, St. Louis IX, to house the crown of thorns, one of the most precious relics in the world. The symbolism was significant. This saintly king realized that his crown was an earthly and limited one, and that the one who was crowned with thorns is the king of kings, to whom he himself is subject, from whom his own authority derives, and to whom he must render an account on Judgment Day. The chapel is a masterpiece of Gothic architecture, with not just stained glass windows, but stained glass walls that seem light as air and flooded with color. Pictures can't do it justice. If you catch the sun at the right time of day, the experience is like something out of this world. Visitors enter Saint Chapelle from below, from a staircase that pops you right out into the chapel. When I've been able to visit, I love to find a corner and just watch the faces of first-time visitors as they enter. Their jaws drop, their eyes ascend, there's a moment of awe-filled wonder. Nothing could prepare them for the beauty they're experiencing. I remember the comment of one visitor who said to his family, I feel like I'm standing inside a jewel. I see something similar in the Basilica of St. Patrick's Old Cathedral in Manhattan. You've probably heard of St. Patrick's Cathedral. It's arguably the most famous church in America and the only one that four popes have visited. What most people don't know, however, is that it's not the original cathedral for New York. The first St. Patrick's Cathedral is almost a century older. It's downtown, in the Soho and Little Italy neighborhoods. And although it pales in comparison to the newer, bigger version, it's a beautiful church in its own right. When people step inside, there are always lots of oohs and ahs, and the cameras start clicking away. Many of the people aren't Catholic, and might not even believe in God, but they all recognize beauty when they see it. Old St. Pat's has been eliciting that reaction for over 200 years. When it first opened its doors in 1815, it was the largest indoor space in New York State. Think of an immigrant living in Little Italy or the Lower East Side in a tenement that's crowded, dirty, noisy, smelly. There was hardly anywhere to move, little privacy. Life was hard. Then he steps into this cathedral on Mott Street, and he's transported into another world. Remember, there were no movies or television or internet back then. The stained glass windows were the most colorful things he'd ever seen. Wealthy people could afford museum tickets or had their own art collections. For a poor person, though, this was the only place he could go to see beautiful statues. The rich could afford concert tickets or hire their own musicians. But what about the poor? There was no iTunes, no AirPods. Church was the only place he could hear world-class music, heavenly music, and all for free. When you think about it, the church is the great equalizer. There's no admission fee, no orchestra seats and balcony seats. To this day, you can see a millionaire and a homeless man kneeling side by side in the pew. It's a bit odd, though. These churches, which inspire such awe, also, at times, elicit another strong reaction, anger. 
it's one of the most common criticisms leveled against the church, that they have all this money and gold and art and could have given it to the poor. It amazes me how many people think that the Catholic Church is loaded with money, like there's some pool of gold coins in the Vatican and the Pope pulls a Scrooge McDuck and dives into it. The annual operating budget of the Vatican is roughly equal to a mid-sized American college. Harvard University is many times wealthier than the Vatican. And yet, St. Peter's Basilica doesn't charge admission. Everyone and anyone is welcome to walk right in. It's been my experience, though, that mass attendance and criticism of finances enjoy an inverse proportion. The less someone goes to church, the more likely he is to criticize it. That's because it really comes down to a question of faith. We pay for what we think is important. On the one hand, the criticism stands on a faulty premise. I mentioned earlier how these churches exist for the poor. They exist for everyone, but historically they offer more to the poor than to people who otherwise have beautiful places to live and work in. Now, someone might say that's all fine, but it's still not putting food on their table or clothes on their back. I can only say that nothing has done more for poor people than the Catholic Church. In the ancient world, wealth was considered a sign of God's favor. The poor were cursed. They deserved their plight. Then Jesus, who is poor, says, Blessed are the poor. He warns that wealth is not a blessing, but a danger. That it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. That when we feed the hungry or clothe the naked, we do that for him. He identifies himself with the poor in a radical, mystical way. The theme is so common that we speak of the preferential option for the poor. They're the favorites of God because they don't have material comforts to rely on. They can make more room for God because the things of this world haven't crowded him out. That's why St. Paul writes that the love of money is the root of all evil. And for 2,000 years, Christians have tried to live up to these words, not just individually, but institutionally. Think of how many schools and orphanages and hospitals have fed and clothed and cared for those who otherwise would be neglected or who couldn't afford these services. The Catholic Church is the largest charitable organization in the history of the world. So why all this money spent on magnificent churches, the artwork, the gold chalices, the bejeweled vestments? Well, let's look at Jesus. There's an episode that's told in all four Gospels. We hear it at Mass every year on Monday of Holy Week, just as our Lord is about to begin his Passion. Jesus is in Bethany, at the home of his dear friends, the sisters Martha and Mary, and their brother Lazarus. Mary takes a jar of precious ointment, a liter, and pours it on the feet of Jesus to anoint him. We have to understand the lavish wastefulness of this gesture. A few drops would have sufficed to fill the room with its aroma. One of the disciples points out that the leader cost 300 days' wages. In other words, an entire year's salary was just dumped on Jesus' feet. It's a shockingly extravagant display. That same disciple also said that the money could have been spent on the poor. That disciple was Judas. St. John, who was there, tells us that Judas didn't care about the poor at all. He was the treasurer among the twelve, the one who held the money bag and he used to steal from it. He's upset that he's not getting any of this money. Jesus allows Mary to proceed with this gesture 
because it's an act of love. Does he need his feet to be anointed with a year's income worth of oil? No, of course not. But Mary needs to do it. Love has to act, has to show itself. We all know this. Why do men buy diamond engagement rings or jewelry for their wives? Why do we give gifts at all, even when people protest that they don't need anything? Because it's a human instinct and desire to express our love. God doesn't need anything. There's nothing we can give him. He's not impressed with Saint Chapelle or St. Peter's Basilica or even old St. Patrick's. To him, it's like the child who runs home from school with a card he made for mom. The lines are rough and he has to explain what everything is, but you can be sure it's going on the fridge. Mom doesn't need the card, but the child takes so much joy in giving it to her. We have a need to give God our very best. It doesn't mean we neglect the poor. As Jesus replied to Judas, the poor you always have with you. We are all called to assist those in need, and that need will always be there. But so will the desire to give God our very best. In ancient Judaism, the people gave God the first fruits of the harvest. They gave him the best they had. Again, not because he needs it, but because we need to give it to him. It's an act of faith and an act of love. And it should increase our faith and our love. We can't pretend that physical things don't matter, that our senses don't affect us. When we hear an upbeat song, we start walking or driving a little faster. When we smell something delicious, we feel hungrier. Buildings convey a message too. In a bank, for example, the dark wood paneling, the leather chairs, the soft lighting, they all convey a message of seriousness and security, that your money is safe here. In a casino, the flashing lights and loud noise, the absence of windows and clocks to remove any sense of time, that's all to distract and disorient, that your money's not safe there. For all the variety of church designs, they should share a common theme of being a place set apart. You know it's a sacred place, one that calls us to act differently than we would anywhere else. So why do we have churches at all? One of the criticisms you hear from people, usually not churchgoers, is that these buildings are unnecessary, that God is everywhere. Certainly, we can be with God wherever we are, in prayer, and all of creation is sustained by God. But churches have a special way of teaching us about the incarnational nature of our faith. I've spoken in the past about the physical aspect of Christianity, how God uses his own creation to be the channels of his grace water and wine and bread and oil. He took on a specific individual human nature from a specific individual human mother. There's a particularity about our faith. God walked this earth in a particular time and place. So yes, God is everywhere, but not in the same way. The disciples were in the presence of Jesus in a way that's not possible for us right now. They saw his resurrected body, which we will only be able to do in heaven. God is present to us now in many ways. He's present when we're gathered in prayer. He's present in the scriptures that we read. He's present in the poor and the marginalized. But he's present above all in the most blessed sacrament, the Eucharist. That's why we call it the real presence. The host or small wafer of bread that a priest consecrates at mass doesn't become a symbol of Jesus. It really is Jesus. 
It is his actual body, blood, soul, and divinity, present to us in a sacramental way. The appearances of bread and wine remain, the look, the taste, but those are only appearances. God is there in a unique and privileged way. And a church is where we find him, at Mass and any time we stop in for some moments of prayer. We look for the tabernacle, the small box with the gold door that keeps the Blessed Sacrament inside. It's usually right in the center, behind the main altar, so that we don't have to go hunting for Jesus. He wants us to find him easily. That position of the tabernacle is also a good reminder. As Jesus is in the center of the church, so should he be in the center of our lives. He shouldn't be something that we put off to the side. The tabernacle usually has a red candle burning next to it to indicate that the Blessed Sacrament is inside. It's sort of like flying the royal standard over Buckingham Palace. You know that the Queen is there. Well, in church, we know that the King is there. That's what makes churches so warm for Catholics. Even if you're the only one inside, you're not alone. Jesus is there, in his home. Every year on Holy Thursday, after the Mass of the Lord's Supper, there's the stripping of the altar. Everything is taken out of the sanctuary. The altar cloths, the candlesticks, the decorations. The Blessed Sacrament is removed, the red candle is blown out, and the tabernacle is empty. On Good Friday, there's such a sense of barrenness. It feels like an abandoned house. I can't think of anything that more fully conveys the sense of mourning that marks that day and the death of Jesus that we commemorate. It feels wrong because a church is where God dwells with us. And that place of dwelling goes back to our Jewish roots. In Judaism, the temple in Jerusalem was the holiest place on earth because it contained the Word of God, the tablets on which God inscribed the Ten Commandments for Moses. It was the closest that the people could come to God to be near His Word. All of that is fulfilled in Jesus. He is the Word made flesh, the true temple. His name, Emmanuel, means God with us. As God made man, He is the true meeting place between God and the human race. But He wants us to be part of the temple, too. He is the cornerstone, but He calls us to be living stones, to build up the church, to be a temple where God is pleased to dwell. And all of this points us to heaven, our true home, where we will dwell with God forever. That experience of people walking into a beautiful church and feeling like they've been transported into heaven, that's how it's supposed to be. That's what churches are supposed to do, to bridge heaven and earth, to open our minds and hearts to what lies beyond this world. I've stepped into some churches and just stopped in my tracks, eyes wide and mouth agape, thinking to myself, I didn't know something could be so beautiful. That's a mere foreshadowing of what heaven is like. As the psalm tells us, Eye has not seen, ear has not heard what God has ready for those who love him. We will spend all eternity just in awe at such beauty, the beauty that is God himself, from whom all good things come. We'll be standing inside the ultimate jewel box, except this time we'll also be wearing the crown of eternal life.